trip tells the story of an incident when his youngest child got hit in the head from something that one of his older children was swinging, a stick or something. Hit him in the head. He starts bleeding. The older two kids are screaming, you know, daddy, 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 daddy. There's just total chaos. He comes on the scene. Kid is bleeding. He's holding the child in his arms. He's so shaken by everything that he can't remember the phone number to 911. And and his, he notices at some point that the child that he's holding, you know, the kids are running, daddy, 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 ah, bleeding, blood, ah, call the 911. And he notices that his, his, this child in his arms is just calm. He looks up at his dad and he says, I'm so glad my daddy is a doctor. And he was. He got a, a doctor of uh, ministry at Westminster Seminary. And uh, the point of sharing that is that your, men- your mentality gives birth to your activity. What, what you think really influences what you do. It, it, and it may not even matter whether or not, well, it doesn't matter whether or not you are correctly perceiving the reality of what's taking place, you're interacting with your perception. Jonathan, we talked about this as we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards talks about the, the faculty of the soul in a human. And it goes something like this. You perceive reality. You, you, you perceive... Some, you have a perception, a worldview. You're taking in some sort of uh, assessment of the world, you're reading things, you're hearing things, you're smelling things, you're touching things, you're gathering information, you have a view of the world, a paradigm, a perspective, perception of some situation, and then your affections start interacting with that perception. So you find this thing to be beautiful and that thing not to be so beautiful, and your your affections start going to work with what you're perceiving as reality, and then based upon whatever your strongest affections are, you start moving toward those things. You're, which means that your, your mentality is really important because it gives birth to that activity. It gives birth to the actions of the will. Which is why the Bible puts such a high premium on renewing your mind. Think God's thoughts after him do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind think differently because if what you think about reality is inconsistent with god's view of reality which is ultimate reality if your view if your perception if your perspective is inconsistent with reality you will act upon that corrupted view your actions will flow from this, in this, this mentality that doesn't match with reality. And you'll start to bear bad fruit. Fruit that is inconsistent with the realities of the universe, like Christ is Lord. Well, the Corinthians 
had a bad mentality. And it was bearing fruit. They were acting consistent with their perception, but their perception was off. They needed to be reformed in their thinking. And we're going to take a look at that. You'll see it mostly in verses 12 and 13. The Corinthian mentality that gives birth to activity. And we're going to put it together. There's really two pieces to it. One piece in verse 12 and one piece in verse 13. We'll take those two pieces of how they're thinking, put them together so that we kind of have a good feel for how they're viewing life. And let me show you what we have here in step one of these two pieces. And I'm going I'm to just call it the Corinthians foggy freedom. Corinthians foggy view of freedom. You know, I, I don't know what it is about this concept of freedom. Freedom in the Lord. I don't know, I don't know if you've experienced this. You ever heard somebody talk about, their, about freedom in the Lord that just kind of left you wondering, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what you mean when you say that. Like, like, like there's just this, this uh, abstract experience that this person has. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just sensing just great freedom in the Lord. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? I have two, I've, and, and with, with this term freedom, this notion of freedom in particular, I've seen uh, a couple of abuses or misunderstandings or, or things that I just thought, hmm, I just want to ask some more questions. Two, two ways I've, I've seen this notion misunderstood. One of them I'm going to call Christian hippie freedom. Christian hippie freedom, and this is, this is where you, you have this kind of Christianese talk. You're using, you, you maybe hear some Bible language, and, it, it, and as, as the person maybe shares, it seems to be void of any clearly defined, concrete notion of, of what this person means when they talk about freedom. It's just this, this existential experience that's, that's kind of vague, maybe some slippery... Weird, like I'm just not tracking with what you're saying, and, and honestly, it sounds a lot more like an LSD trip than a firm, doctrinally sound. You were enslaved to something, you were then released from that, and now you are free, and I can track with you what you're saying makes sense. There, there is notional four square sides to what you're saying, propositional truth that I can take hold of, and yes, I hear what you're saying. Sometimes it's totally void of that. I have a little example here. I pulled this off a website from a ministry. I won't, I won't mention the ministry. You've, you've probably never heard of it. Um, we are called to unlock destiny, to bring the freedom and the fire of a revivalist, to break off the limitations that life has placed upon the believers, to set the captives free in whatever manner that may be, end quote. What, what are you talking about? I'm just not sure. I'm, tr- I'm just not sure. I'm, I'm tracking with so just Christian hippie freedom. You know, it's just a, a magic carpet ride. Just this, this experience. Where it's like being at a Grateful Dead concert or something. Here's another kind of freedom that I. There's another way that I, I think I've heard people misunderstand this concept. I'm going to call it just freedom to resist. Freedom to resist. <clears throat> And this is where ethical demands in the scriptures are resisted 
because we're, we're free in the Lord. Maybe you'll hear people talk that way. I'm, I'm, just, I'm free in the Lord. I remember one couple spent some time with Amy and I one time. We were just having a discussion. and they, it, it, As the discussion went on, it, it became clear that they were sort of agitated with us because we held this view that in, in the body of Christ, when you see a brother in sin, you should go to them in humility, in love, in gentleness, and confront that sin. We've, of course, been studying over the last couple months. And as we talked about that, the response is, yeah, but we're free in the Lord. I'm not sure free in the Lord means what you think it means, or I'm not sure what you mean by it that would make it applicable to what I was just talking about. Because when the Bible talks about freedom in the Lord, it doesn't talk about free to do whatever you want to do. In these kinds of situations, of course, I'm free in the Lord, you're telling me what to do. Any kind of ethical pressure from the community of faith gets dubbed, what's the word, that, what's, what are these people who are trying to help you walk in obedience? They're legalists. That's, what, that's just kind of how it will play out. Freedom in the Lord. When the Bible talks about freedom in the Lord, the Bible says things like, you are free from sin. John chapter 8, verse 32. Actually, I'll just read this. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's powerful truth. Free from what? Jesus goes on. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. The Pharisees say this. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Interesting. The, the, the Jews have been enslaved to Egypt, uh, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, but they, they seem to have forgotten that. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will, we, you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Slave to sin, free from sin. Concrete notions that we can follow, that we can track with. Or the Bible will talk about freedom from the Mosaic Law. Freedom from a system of works righteousness. Acts chapter 13, Galatians chapter 5, perhaps 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 4. Or freedom from anxiety, 1 Corinthians 7.32. Or freedom from slavery, 1 Corinthians 12.30. Like literally, slavery. The social institution, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Galatians 3, 28. Freedom is the opposite of this idea of being bound to something. And then you're, you're bound to it and then you are released from it. You are freed from it. And sometimes the Bible will say, therefore you are now free to pursue something that you could not pursue before because you were previously bound to this. But now that you're free from it, you are free to do this. And the Bible always defines what it is that you have been freed from and what it is that you are freed for. It's not, it's not this vague, I just, love the, I just love freedom in the Lord kind of existential weirdo experience. And the Corinthians had a notion of freedom 
that needed some serious modification. Join with me, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Notice the quotation marks. Here's a Corinthian slogan that Paul quotes. All things are lawful for me, they say. And Paul responds. But not all things are helpful, guys. And then he quotes them again. All things are lawful for me, the Corinthians are saying. Paul responds. But I will not be enslaved to anything. He's modifying this notion of freedom. The, 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 the kind of freedom that the Corinthians have in mind is some sort of, uh, I'm free to do what I want to. They've no doubt heard of the freedom offered in the gospel. They've heard Paul talk about it. He was in Corinth for quite some time. And they have turned it into a freedom of their own imagination. So Paul qualifies the slogan. All, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says uh, two, two qualifications. One, if it's not beneficial... For you and or for everybody. If it's not beneficial, and two, if it enslaves you to something else, you're not free. There are boundaries to freedom. If, 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 if freedom in the Lord just means freedom, st- you know, stick it in anywhere you want, it's just not the biblical notion of freedom. So Paul qualifies it. That's step one in Paul's challenge to the Corinthians. That's the first thing to understand about what's happening in the Corinthian mentality. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. Step number two. The Corinthians are heavily committed to the temporary nature of the body and of food. Read with me in verse 13. Notice the quotation marks. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. If you have an ESV or an NIV, the quotes close right there. Which would imply that then Paul responds by saying, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, I actually don't think that's where you should close the quote where the ESV, where the NIV has closed it, I don't think it closes the... I think they closed the quote in the wrong place. Because it means that Paul is now emphasizing God will destroy both one and the other. As though, as though Paul were the one who is saying, let's focus for a second on the temporary nature of the body and of food. Now there are a couple reasons why I don't think that's where Paul's going. One it would be hard to get around the conclusion that Paul is denying that there's going to be stomachs in the resurrection body and that there's going to be food in the eternal state. You're going to have a... That's... When Jesus... There's only been one resurrected body into the eternal state in the history of humanity. It's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows up after the resurrection. The disciples say, the disciples think that he's a spirit. He says, go ahead, you can touch. You can touch me. Feel the body. They still seem kind of freaked out by it. In Luke 24, 43, he says, do you have any fish? And so he eats some fish in front of them so that they know this is a real body. 
I don't think Paul is denying uh, food in the eternal state. I don't think Paul is denying that there's a stomach in the eternal body. I think this is part of the Corinthians quote. I think Paul's still quoting the slogan that the Corinthians have. It makes much more sense of the flow of logic in the passage. So the TNIV, the New International Version, probably gets this one right. They, they, here's, how, here's the slogan in the TNIV. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, God will destroy them both. Food is made for the stomach, stomach is made for the food, and we're only going to be here a little bit of time. So eat up. That's, that's the Corinthian mentality. And by doing this, what it reveals is that the Corinthians have dichotomized, split into, severed the notion of the spiritual or the soul and the body. Like when God does spiritual things, He does things in the soul and your body doesn't really matter. The food is for stomach. The stomach's for food. God's going to destroy them both. He's taking care of the spiritual stuff. Eat up. Have fun. Enjoy. Later on in Christian history, this type of thinking was uh, resembled in a, in, in a movement known as Gnosticism. This isn't, this isn't Gnosticism. This is too early in history, but it's that type of thinking. So here's, here's what you have when you combine all things are lawful and the second Corinthian slogan, food and stomachs are made for one another. The combination is the Corinthian mentality. Eat whatever you want while you have the chance. Feed your appetite. None of it matters in the end anyways because the body is going into the grave. And God doesn't care about the body. He just cares about the soul. Question. What happens when you take that mentality and apply it to sex? It's exactly what they've done. They've taken this mentality and they've applied it to sex. And here's what you have. All things are lawful. Sex is for the body. The body is for sex. It's going in the grave anyways. Live it up. That's why there's such an abrupt shift between the first half of verse 13 and the, first half of verse, and the second half of verse 13. Let's read verse 13 again. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food. Keep the quote going. And God will destroy both one and the other. That's the Corinthian quote. It's all about food. Suddenly, Paul switches to sex talk. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And the reason is, Because they've taken this mentality that they have about food. It's this slogan that's kind of floating around the church. They've been applying it to sex. Well, Paul is trying to correct this mentality. Don't you think that if it's physical, it therefore has nothing to do with things pertaining to the Spirit of God? As though God's concern is exclusively for our invisible personhood, but He has no care for your body. 
So Paul constructs his own saying here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God cares about your body. He cares about your body. He cares what you do with your body. Just because it's physical doesn't mean it's not connected to the spiritual soul dynamics of your life. Should you track it with me? Okay. Five reflections then on the significance of our bodies. Five reflections. Number one, coming straight from this text. Number one, God cares for the body so much. And if it's significant, what else does Paul have to say here? Number one, God has claimed full ownership of your body. God has claimed full ownership of your body. You don't own your body. The end of verse 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You don't own your body. The imagery here is that of the slave market. And the Lord Jesus has paid the price that it costs to own you. The cross is his payment. You are his possession. He has purchased you. And specifically, he owns your body. Does not belong to you. My body does not belong to me, which is crazy, right? I mean, if I don't own my body, what do I own? Nothing. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Now this is hard for us. So we've grown up in a culture that says you're free to do with your body whatever you please. It's assumed for men. It's, it's actually for you women. You've probably been targeted with this mentality. You're free to do as you please. It's part of this freedom notion. You're free to do with what you please with your body. But you see, from the beginning, the great destructive lust in the human heart is the craving for individualized, privatized, self-determining autonomy. God has said no to some things. And He always does it in love, and He always does it to preserve a greater yes for your life. But he said no to some things, and we interpret that no as prison bars that are keeping us from doing things that we are free to do. We want to be free to do these things. Don't you dare, God, take away my freedom. Resistance freedom. Freedom to resist. Don't tell me what to do. I'm free. It's especially weird if you're free in the Lord. And it's just not true. You're not free to do with your body whatever you please. You're not free to do what you want. You're free from sin. And you're, you're a slave to righteousness. And you're a slave to God. Romans chapter 6, verses 18 and 22. Your body is the property of another. It's the property of God. If you're married, you don't have authority over your body. The one who owns it 
has given authority to your spouse over your body. That'll be next week's sermon. It's the next paragraph in 1 Corinthians. You don't own your body. It's crazy. Number two, second reflection on the significance of the body. You will resurrect. Look with me at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. You're going to resurrect. You see, the, the, the Corinthians have been focusing on the temporary nature of the body. And they've just been short-sighted. They've, they've used that as, a, as the, the justification for their indulgence. It's not only probably led to some incredible gluttony, but it's led to some awful sexual sin. And Paul says, you, just, you need to look further. Your body is going to raise back up which means that God is committed to the body. He just doesn't share the flippancy of, that the Corinthians have for the physical body. He's going to raise your body back up. Don't say God doesn't care about the body. You'll have a body for eternity. Real body. Weird. Awesome. Hold, uh, yeah, hold, all of chapter 15 is devoted to this issue of the resurrection of the body. It's a, bit, it's a problem in the church. You've got mis, mis, misconceptions about what happens with the body, what happens with resurrection. So that, that'll be, a, that'll be a, a cool chapter to look through. And the coming resurrection is not the only reason that we should be managing our, our bodies in holiness. Number three, the third reflection on the significance of the body is that our bodies are members of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Fifteen, do you not know that your members, your bodies are members of Christ? What does he what does he mean by that? One commentator, Anthony Thistleton, says goes something like this Your bodies are the limbs and organs of Jesus. Members, like body parts, members of his body. Your bodies are the limbs and organs of Jesus' body. There's some profound connection between our bodies and the Lord Jesus himself. If you belong to Jesus, you're part of his body. Look at verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So there's this pervasive bond that we have with the Lord Jesus. It's taken place between us through our union with Him. Both our spirit and our body are in such a union with Him that we think of our bodies in some sense as His body parts. In fact, it's the very connection between Jesus and His people that lies behind the logic of verses 14 and 15. Go to verse 14 again. God raised the Lord... And He will raise us up by His power. God raised the Lord Jesus. He's going to raise us up by His power. Verse 15. Or do you, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He, he raised Him up. 
He's going to raise you up. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? If He's raised up, you're going to be raised up too. Why? Because of the union between the two of us. Profound union between Christ and His people. Our bodies are Jesus' body parts. And so, number four, fourth reflection on the significance of the body, sex matters. It matters big time. Once you realize that there's a sense in which your body needs to be thought of as part of Jesus' body, suddenly sex is not a mere matter of of hormones and muscles and biology and animal instincts. Sex is rightly seen as an activity that when it's mishandled, it can do incredible damage. We all know that. When sex is mishandled, it can do incredible damage. Two ways in which this passage illumines that, and the first is this, sexual immorality seriously dishonors God. Verses 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the limbs and organs of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Paul rejects it in the strongest terms he possibly can in the Greek language. Meganoita. Never. It's, it's an awful image. Take the, the members of Christ's body away from Him and unite them to a prostitute. Never. Never. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Now what you have here is, of course, Corinthian believers who are having sex with prostitutes because they don't think the body matters. Because your mentality gives birth to your activity. Their whole worldview, their whole thinking, is all kinds of screwed up here. And they're just, they're just acting. It's giving birth to perverse behavior. They, they, don't, they don't understand. And notice so far, this, this is Paul is just working with shaping of paradigms, shaping of the worldview, reshaping their theology. Because if, if you want to get them to turn the corner and act differently, you have to reshape their thinking. So that's where, that's where he starts. That's, that's where he's focusing for most of the passage. All things are lawful for me. The body is for sex. Sex is for the body. God will destroy them both. The fun will you have the chance. Well, the body has not been given to us for the sake of bringing shame to Christ, but for bringing honor to Christ, right? Verse 20, For you were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. The second way that sexual immorality does damage is that it's extremely self-destructive. Verse 18, 
flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, we do other things that are not good for our bodies, right? Get lazy, gluttony. We do things that are bad for our bodies, but there's something about sexual immorality that apparently uniquely damages our personhood. Takes what belongs to the Lord, takes what's made for the Lord, it brings it into some sort of perverse union, in this case with a prostitute, and it does unique damage to our personhood. And most of us know this. Sex matters. And it's something to flee from. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Something to flee from. Some of us have made some very bad choices with this. Some of us have made some bad choices. And by the grace of God, He has taken us to those things to help us revisit that and to call it what it is. For some of us, we haven't gone there yet. I'm guessing. And the temple is in shambles because of it, which is the fifth reason that the body matters. Your body is a temple, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I was depraved. And in God's mercy, He brought me back to things that I had put way out of mind and stuff that I had never been willing to call sin. And He just stood with me and said, do you remember this? And I said, yes, I do. And it was as though He he, he took me and he, He held my shoulders with big wounds in his hands. And he said, that's what I died for. In his mercy, he revealed to me the depth of the corruption of my heart. A few weeks back, I said, I compared the church to a water treatment plant. Remember that? I said, if you, bring, if you bring your sewage into this place, I won't be surprised. Why? I've got sewage. I'm familiar with this stuff. We're all familiar with this stuff if God has had mercy on our souls. But you know what lies deeper than the deepest, darkest pit of our depravity is the firm foundation of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I tasted not only the sewage, but I tasted the grace of Christ in ways that I have never tasted in my entire life. And the nearness of Christ to me in those times, He can handle that. He can handle it. And you know what that was? It was a temple cleansing. It was a temple cleansing. 
Do you remember that, son? Yeah. I own your body. And I died to cleanse it from that. Jesus can handle the cleansing of your temple. And the reason I can stand up here and share that story and, and, and really feel, even though I can look at that and say that, that those things in my life were shameful, shame, shameful choices. Jesus can handle that and He can heal. He can cleanse the temple and He can heal. And that's what He wants to do. It's amazing in light of the seriousness of the issues here, the uniting of Christ's members with prostitutes. Sin against the body, defiling the temple of God. It's amazing that at the end of this paragraph, we don't read, and you are defiled for life. We don't read, you blew it. We read, flee from sexual immorality and glorify God in your body. Which means, you can turn. You can be healed. And you can walk in newness of life. Some people are not walking in newness of life. Some people are, are, are feeling the weight of unconfessed sin and the temple's in, in, in shambles. And he wants to cleanse the temple. The Lord will, will draw near to you in the midst of that. Let's pray. Handle these things lightly. I, there's just nobody in this room who can handle the depth of these kinds of things except you. And that's my great plea is that you would be, you would be a stabilizing Savior for your people. Perhaps as things have come to mind over the last 15, 20 minutes, God, I pray that you would gently and lovingly take your sons and daughters and begin now this process of allowing them to taste the power of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. and bring glory to Him because of His grace.